Welcome to Much More Muchier with Pup Duffy and Kara Lane, an Odd Imagination production. Pup and Kira here with Ted Perkins of recoverymoviemeetups.com. There's going to be a world premiere of the film that we love and that Kira was blessed enough to talk with the creatives. Okay. And that'll be May 14th. That's Mother's Day, but it's going to be in the evening. So you can hang out with your mamas in the morning and go watch the film that evening. Ted, welcome. Kira, I'm going to let you kind of handle the clean slate part of it because I wasn't involved in the interview, although I did see the film. And you have more uh, experience with having a loved one that was um, an addict. I had an uncle who was he died of an overdose, but I was only like 11 or 12, and I don't really remember it so much. And then we'll, uh, Ted, I, I would love to hear your thoughts about how cinema is helping people with their recovery. Okay? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, um, so going off of what you were saying about how, I mean, I guess we're jumping into that. <laughs> We're jumping into pups bit right now, pup. but um, going on the effects of sim- cinema itself. Um, I mean, you're a writer. I'm a writer. We know how emotions can be moved with just a few words, but then you accentuate that with the emotions of people portraying those words, those feelings, those experiences. Um, what was it that like really drew you into starting up your company um, and how you came to the conclusion that this is, well, a monumental and a game-changing way to handle uh, recovery and addiction? Well, thanks for that question. I, I love those words, monumental and game-changing. Um, I'm, I'm, I try to be a humble person, but a lot of people have said it's a game changer. Um, but I think that's just because, um, you know, the mutual support meeting formats that are out there, AA, 12-step, uh, and uh, Smart Recovery, have been around so long, and there really hasn't been any modification to the mutual support meeting format um, for, I don't know, since 25 years that Smart started. Motivational interviewing came in about 15 years ago, and um, which is not a bad thing. Those all the programs that are in existence today have helped millions of people and they will continue to do so. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that those programs are bad in any way, but you know, I think the more you read and the more you know about recovery these days, we're realizing that there really are multiple pathways to recovery. And I've been to, I'm in recovery from alcohol and I've been to hundreds of AA meetings. And I've been to perhaps even thousands of smart recovery meetings. I give smart recovery meetings and have been a facilitator for smart recovery with our community here in Santa Monica, California for for years now. And we've had thousands of attendees and I've had tons of meetings and and the meetings are great. Um, But I realize that a lot of people in meetings, um, especially in rehab facilities or IOPs, there's a percentage of people who are there because they need to be there, because they've been told to be there, because they've been forced to be there. And a lot of times going into those meetings with that mindset limits your ability to be open and emotional and vulnerable and really interact in these meetings in a way which can be very, very productive or ultimately the intention of the meeting. And not everybody responds emotionally or opens up at the same pace. It might take several meetings. 
But what I found is when I would, when I would in my own smart recovery meetings and other, in other uh, situations with other people, when I would bring up a movie and say, do you remember that scene from this film? And we would talk about it. People suddenly started really opening up because they had a visual reference. <laughs> and so I started to do some research about the effect of visual storytelling and visual effects on people's emotions and decision-making capabilities versus logical. And we all like to think that we're all very logical and all very rational. And in fact, when you go to 12-step meetings and, and smart recovery meetings, they're really all very, you know, a 12-step is a little bit more uh, emotional and spiritual based. 12-step is, um, smart recovery is more like rational, emotive behavioral therapy, science approach. None of those things are incompatible. You know, they're all great approaches to solving a pressing problem and they're all great in their own way. But what I realized was that when somebody goes to one of these meetings um, and it's all very uh, talk-based, not visual-based. And so if you put on a blindfold, would you get the same effect out of those meetings than if you didn't wear a blindfold? And the answer to that was generally, yeah, you probably get the same amount because you're really just talking and thinking about what people are telling you. There's nothing to see. You know, there's maybe a workbook at other people, but there's very limited things to see in these, in these meetings. And so... Um, I wanted to stimulate conversations by showing visual references of, of things in films and more importantly, faces. And so uh, my premise, and, uh, and this has been borne out by our, um, by our meetings up to date, is that, you know, addiction is a very subjective experience that, that works in your mind. You know, it's sort of like your addiction is something that's going on in your mind. It's very personal. And you come up with justifications for why you use or don't use or why you go into recovery or you don't. Um, and, and so therefore, when you go to um, a meeting, if you see an objective representation of addiction in the form of another person dealing with that problem, hurting other people's lives, inflicting damage on themselves and others, health consequences. But conversely, if you also see them going through the decision to get better, going to rehab, fixing their life, uh, repairing their relationships with loved ones, dealing with all those things, um, and then successfully exiting the other side with a happy ending as, as only a Hollywood film could, could portray, or perhaps not a happy ending, like for instance, in Leaving Las Vegas, doesn't have a happy ending, but we can also learn from that as well. I thought that those kinds of opportunities are very rich in terms of like vicarious learning, emotional relatability, empathetic listening and motivational interviewing. And so I created the uh, Recovery Movie Meetups program to formalize that in a way that treatment facilities and recovery organizations could use films in a very structured therapeutic way to get optimal results um, for their clients in recovery and even individuals who wanna use the book in their own recovery journey and using films. Uh, what happened to me was that to, for me to get sober, I watched hundred movies in hundred days and I decided that I was gonna write a book about it, which became addicted in film. And then what happened was that people started to start these meetings around what I had been speaking about in the book. And then so by natural extension, it seemed like recovery meet movie meetups program was, was the next logical step. And then it just sort of started to catch on really fast. And now the, uh, the results have been really promising. People seem to really love these meetings. And that's, that's a dream come true for me because I've always thought that if people go to a meeting and they actually have a great time as opposed to going to like, oh, another meeting, Geez, I have to go. You know, if they go with like looking forward to it, like a lot of people do when they go to these meetings, um, that's that's actually a good opportunity for personal self reevaluation and, and personal growth and recovery success.
Yeah. And like the thing that um, to speak about clean slate in particular, since that's the movie that's going to be streamed on Mother's Day. Um, the thing about clean slate was it was so um, complex in the levels and the dynamics in which was presented. It wasn't just, um, you know, in the clean slate movie, you've got two people who became best friends and bonded over uh, mm -hmm. movies and wanting to direct things um, in a recovery facility. And it, it, it follows their whole journey through healing, recovery, while trying to also make a movie for mm -hmm. um, addicts and alcoholics and like all of these people who don't have a voice and has never been accurately portrayed um, their feelings, yes. their emotions and um, their journey. Um, and the most beautiful part about that is, is it hits not only those people who are going through their own personal hellish journey to recovery, but it also hits on the emotions that loved ones feel, um, the yeah. emotions of, uh, caretakers and people that are in the field itself, um, the heart and the passion behind it it just was so overwhelmingly emotional it took me a few days to process it um yeah. and I, I i feel like that is exactly what we need um to go into like desensitization that we have um in in the nation and in the world for people's plights um people's journeys their struggles and I think that Clean Slate did a fantastic job in bringing humanity, the human mm -hmm. element back into something like this. Um, how did you feel about Clean Slate when you watched it? I agree. Well, you know, I, when I saw the movie or when I found out about the movie, I said to myself, I, I don't think it was sort of like fate or so. I don't know, I don't believe in fate, but, but it was just one of these things like, I could not have imagined a better movie to more faithfully represent what I was trying to convey by creating um, Addicted in Film and Recovery Movie Meetups program. And it's really um, a movie that sort of, it's actually one step further. It's a movie about making a movie, which is even like, you know, icing on the cake, but a movie that shows uh, addiction and recovery from, a, from an honest, uh, uh, brutally honest uh, place with many different factors with, you know, pluses and minuses and the process of recovery itself, I thought was so compelling to watch because, uh, and one of the, one of the premise that I, one of the things that I really say in the book and, 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 and part of the program is this understanding that movies um, or recovery is sort of like a movie. It's an epic story told over and over again. You have somebody who has a problem. They overcome their problem. They do a lot of work. They have good days. They have bad days. They're fighting against themselves most of the time. They have to summon inner courage and strength. They finally get to a point where they decide that they have to move forward. They're, there's a nemesis, which are their own urges. And then they exit and successfully, and they exit rehab, and they hopefully you know, go on to lead a happy life. And that, that story arc is something that most, most movies are. That's what movies are. And so that's what recovery is. And so recovery is like a movie. And so 
to have a movie that portrays that in a documentary format where you see the story of these guys start a movie, start rehab, go through the problems of making a movie, challenges their sobriety and, not, and then exit the other side with their film completed. I'm not going to give away the ending because it's, it's got an amazing ending, not one that you would expect. But um, that, that to me is completely uh, synergistic with, with the message that we were trying to convey. And so um, when, I, when I first saw the film, like I rented it, bought it right away, I called the filmmakers and I said, guys, we got to do something together. Um, and uh, they, they liked what, what I was doing. So now we're, uh, we're looking for, you know, two or three years from now, we might have a huge world premiere of their next movie um, online or even in the theater, who knows? But they're great. They're lovely people. They're very smart. They're very capable. And I'm, Recovery Movie Meetups is really proud to be in business with them. Not in business, but like, you know, try to help out people all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I just, and I'll have to agree. That was like the experience I had with them too. It was just incredible. They're a powerhouse. <laughs> it's really what they are. I'm so humble too. I'm sorry. I just wanted to jump in real quick and emphasize uh, what Ted said. A lot of times in the film, it's the um, the triumphant, right, you know, uh, escape from the, the addictive demons or you're a piece of crap and you die. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like <laughs> someone who's battling addictions in clean slate, they can see they're doing it, but they're also having trouble. You know, it's not one or the other. It's completely easy and you're helped by angels through the process or it's not always in the gutter. You know, it's like, there. it's almost like a broad spectrum of experiences because every human, every individual is different. And I think that mm -hmm. I just want to chime in and say, that's one thing that really touched me with Clean Slate was it wasn't a classic Hollywood take on it, I guess. It was more a more human realistic take, so sorry. Get yeah, back to it. Thank you, no, no, thank you. And really what you said is very important because the, 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 the idea that um, it touched you, you know, it, emotional reaction to something, emotional connection to something can, can really only be achieved uh, many times visually, which is what the whole premise of recovery movie meetups is and why Clean Slate is so great. It's because if you're in recovery, you don't have to be in a rehab facility uh, to identify with the characters. Anybody in recovery, even somebody who's not even in recovery can identify with somebody struggling to overcome their own problems and then do something heroic and almost impossible that says it can't be done. We love those stories. That's what, you know, it's David versus Goliath. That's what movies are. You know, it's, uh, it's taking on, it's Luke Skywalker taking on Darth Vader and blowing up the Death Star. And yeah, that's a very heroic movie, but you know, addiction recovery is, you're really basically blowing up your Death Star <laughs> and, and restoring peace to your own galaxy. It's it's to be said, I think, that um, there is nothing more heroic than healing yourself, than um, expanding your, I guess, I don't know, your character and working on your flaws and, and becoming a better version of you. It's the hardest thing you could possibly do. Um, and a lot of people don't do it because it is so hard. Um, but it is the true hero's journey, you know, in writing, you've got the hero's journey. That's, that's what that's about. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, everybody does have their true hero's journey uh, where you that's see cool. glimpses and choose things and make choices, but it's important 
I think in this movie that drove a point home to me was you are not defined by your mistakes, your past choices, your decisions, and society likes to define us by those. And this kind of broke that away because you get to see, okay, um, people behind the addiction and not the addiction itself, which I think is what brings about a nice humanity kind of tears down that wall of um, society's label of, oh, you're an addict. You're not worth the time. You're not worth this. You're not worth helping. Um, and I think it was beautifully done in that way. Well, Kira, you yeah, and I, I are fighting for representation in films, whether it's um, color, whether it's orientation, whether it's uh, your abilities. Uh, we want to see, you know, we want to see good representation. And this film and what Ted's doing, it's it's right there. It's getting that representation because I think he said something earlier, Ted, and I'm sorry, about people are seeing kind of themselves on the film. And just like you take, you know, you take a drink or you, you know, you hit the pipe or whatever, and it lights up that pleasure area in your mm -hmm. brain. Watching the films can also light up similar pleasure spots like that. And I think you're onto something really cool here about beating <laughs> the cover. Kind of, I said, you know, you quit smoking, you start vaping, you know, by, but replace it with something different, but something healthier. I think that's pretty, that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. Well, thanks. I, I agree. I, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of people don't really realize how much people watch other people and want to imitate other people and emulate other people. Like that's what really humanities, you know, uh, apes and chimpanzees do this. And, you know, our hominid ancestors have done this. Uh, we're constantly watching other people. We're fascinated by what other people do. And we're fascinated to relate that to what we're doing and who we are. We, we get a sense of identity from what other people are doing and, and who other people are. And so when you see, if all you see on TV is somebody, you know, huffing on a, on a crack pipe and, and like living in a gutter, well, that's, is that helpful? No, it's not. It's, it, yes, it could potentially scare you, but, um, you know, does it really have a, a potential benefit? No, if you're seeing, you know, Sandra Bullock in 28 Days, who overcomes her addiction and overcomes a bad relationship with uh, her with her partner, who's where the relationship is entirely based around parting, and she gets into rehab and she thinks, I don't have a problem, I'm not like you people, and over the course of the movie learns the hard way um, that she really is addicted and really needs to take this seriously. And when she gets out of recovery, she wants to stay sober and she has a new life. And she succeeds. Um, and when you see that conveyed, that has a much more, I believe, positive impact than just being scared by seeing somebody laying on the side of a road. I mean, yes, that could be effective as well. But I think a lot of people in the recovery community have already seen that. The scare tactics don't work. Um, if they did, we wouldn't have, you know, addicted individuals. And if reason and logic alone worked, we wouldn't have a drug and alcohol problem uh, in the world. Obviously, emotions are the much more salient factor here. And emotions are guided by what we see, who we see, the faces on the people that we see, and whether we identify with those people as human beings. That's how people can make decisions that make a difference. Right. And it's, it falls in line with the, the stereotypes. It falls in breaking away from the stereotypes. It falls in line 
with, um, I, uh, I had a thought and it just went poof right out of my head. Um, <laughs> this happens. I'm a chaos squirrel. Um, but to go back to what you were saying about all of that, with the positive impact, it, it, prov- it promotes hope. And I mm-hmm. like that you used 28 days because that is one of my ultimate favorite movies that Sandra Bullock has <laughs> ever done. And um, it was powerful watching that journey. That journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I like that it broke a, like these movies, like 28 Days or Clean Slate is, is breaking from the molds in which society has put upon people to other them. And mm-hmm. that's the point was the othering. That's what um, othering right. people. Well, let, me, let me speak to that. I think I'm glad you brought that up in stigmatization. I did a couple of videos about uh, stigmatization. I've read all of the SAMHSA's guides on, you know, uh, reinterpreting language and changing words, et cetera. And I was very sensitive to that when I wrote the book, et cetera. You know, words like addict seem to stick with us forever, although it is an apt description of somebody who is addicted. Alcoholic is a term that some people use, but it's not necessarily applicable to anybody, everybody. And some people can identify, like, you can identify any way you want, but there's other schools of thought that say, like, alcoholism is just a it's just something that you're going through now it's not something that's going to be with you the rest of your life like you're not an addict now no you're dealing with some trauma you overcame your addiction and now you're just a normal person who's not an addict i mean nobody is defined by that and i totally agree with you um and that's why i think um showing uh, these kinds of movies where people come out of these issues and lead happier lives is very very important um and that's why i think we chose a lot of movies that and all the movies that we chose for um, the handbook and for the program sort of like riff off that is that you're not defined by what's going on. This is just something that you're overcoming, just like any one of life's challenges. This just happens to be one of the hardest to deal with. And also another thing is that, yes, there's others and then there's normal people. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how addiction is pervasive. All kinds of addictions are pervasive 24-7 with everybody in the world. Anytime you do something that you like or you take something that you like or you're experiencing something that you like, you want more of it and you want it more often. That's just the way that our minds work. And so everybody is addicted to every other thing. So to have a value judgment that like just because you got addicted to cocaine, you're worse than the, the, than the zillions of people who are addicted to carbohydrates or sugar, that somehow you're bad because, you know, it alters your, but people who are taking caffeine and sugar are also addicted. So I, I don't, you know, buy this value uh, judgment that, you know, drugs and alcohol, et cetera, are bad um, in a different and can be placed in a different addiction category than everybody else. Yes, they have different problems and they need therapy. A sh- person who's addicted to sugar probably doesn't need to go to therapy or a 12-step meeting, although they could, and they could go to uh, recovery movie meetups and talk about their sugar addiction. And quite frankly, one of the movies that I, that I talk about in Addicted in Film is the film Chocolat, which is about um, how people use sugar and chocolate to open up people's minds and emotions, uh, starring Johnny Jeff. I mean, sugar... Caffeine, nicotine, those are all things that are part of the human experience. Everybody everywhere around the world for thousands of years have looked for ways to alter reality. That's just a fact of life. Um, And if you want more proof of that and you want to get deeper into it, read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. 
about how the history of people's use of not just psychedelics, but nicotine, caffeine, all kinds of substances to, to change what reality is. We, we are a race of people or, or a, you know, a group of people that are really not quite okay with normal life. We want to make it either more exciting or forget about it, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. Right. Right. And I like that you brought up the, the trauma part of that. And, and it's really so important that people understand that most of the people, um, I mean, and like you were saying, like addict could be, you know, nicotine, it could be food, it could be anything. Um, most people who have an addiction uh, because of those wonderful dopamine hits <laughs> uh, struggle with either a mental health thing, some kind of disorder, um, traumatic experiences that um, affected them emotionally, uh, you know, mentally, spiritually, or whatever it is. And so they're trying to numb the pain or feel that void with something else to mm -hmm. make it better. And I like that you said that because I, I have ADHD combination. I'm all over the place. And I have noticed that growing up, a lot of the things that I had addiction to, so to speak, like video games or whatever, was because of that nice dopamine hit that my brain just doesn't make enough of in general. So mm -hmm. I'm always chasing that dopamine. Um, and, and that's just as dangerous as, like you were saying, a heroin addict or whatever. You end up giving your whole life to video gaming and then, wait, I mean, mm -hmm. you miss everything. So well, I, I like that you brought that up. No, thanks. And I also, I didn't add chapters about gaming. I was going to, but my editor said your book's already too long. So I don't know that you want to get into gaming necessarily, but I had prepared a chapter about that. I'll probably do it in subsequent issues of the book. Um, and there aren't that many people who are in rehab facilities that are dealing with gaming issues, although that's going to probably increase at some point. And a lot of adolescent um, and young adult programs around the country are doing gaming addiction. I mean, I think um, this is a one of the sad realities is that gaming and internet and, and social media have now been scientifically proven to affect parts of a child's brain um, and also make them more susceptible to seeking short-term uh, gratification. And there's nothing quite short as short-term and gratifying as drugs or alcohol or other behaviors. And so um, I think that we're looking at the possibility, and I'm hoping not, but that we're looking at the possibility of a whole new generation I don't know, but like an overlapping generation of people coming in through the recovery community that have started with games and then they're looking for a quick fix of dopamine and dopamine hit um, uh, over the short term by drugs or alcohol. And that's really what, what drugs and alcohol really is. It's, you know, there are people who like the, the Puritans who worked hard and worked their whole life to find a moment of happiness. And, and great, you know, and over, you know, centuries ago and, and just even a couple of generations ago, before TV, before radio, people were habituated to the fact that they would find happiness incrementally, slowly, and over time through their effort, hard work, piety, whatever it is. Um, but now, you know, we, it's, and, and sometimes they would find refuge from that by going to Vegas for a quick hit. And gambling was something that would give them a quick rush of dopamine. That's why drinking and gambling were seen by religious groups as, as not necessarily in line with the Protestant ethic of like hard work, you know, commitment, and it'll pay off over time, which is a great message. 
And it is true, but now everything has to pay off in three minutes or 30 seconds. Um, and it's a totally different um, mindset. And I think that that's why addiction is such a problem is it, it feeds into how our minds have been habituated to quick results, immediate gratification and immediate and guaranteed self-medication. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'm hoping that my little part of the universe in the addiction recovery sector kind of tries to help and address. Ironically, using movies um, to help people who have become sort of like obsessed with, you know, visual entertainment and YouTube channels, things like that. Right. I, I do have a question um, because like this is a this is a steep slope and it's only the tip of a, of a great big iceberg, so to speak. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. So I'm wondering um, how much of a part do you think that um, governmental, uh, I guess, uh, the the wage gap and like the the one percenters and um, and things like that. Whenever you feel hopeless because you know a government or a society is kind of against you and doesn't um, facilitate the ability to get expedient results and things like mm -hmm. that. Do you, do you think that that might have some sort of play into it where people are now just desensitized because they know it's not going to matter and then they just go and do? Well, yes, that's a really good question. I, I don't, nobody has the answer for how the United States should do things or, or what. And there's lots of things that you could propose, but you go up against one political side of the spectrum, then you go up against the other side of the political spectrum, and you have a lot of inborn assumptions, beliefs, and not a lot of data. So what I like to use is just use an example. And I'm not saying this is an example that should be followed, although I personally agree it could be followed and have great success. But let's look at the case of like, say, you know, Scandinavia or Portugal, where drugs have been almost completely decriminalized in Portugal or the Netherlands. And for instance, in socialist countries like Sweden or Finland, if let's, let's take the typical vodka drinker in Finland, who's working a government job, is really bored, gets into trouble with alcohol, and is not a bad person, but you know he gets into trouble with alcohol, he gets a DUI. If he were in the States, he'd go to jail. He'd be thrown into the system. He'd lose his job. He'd now be in a situation of poverty. He'd probably have more reasons to drink and self-medicate because he's so bummed out and depressed. He's lost everything. They've told him, you're a bad person. You screwed up. You're an alcoholic. You need help. And this is what you need to do. No support, um, just penalties and stigmatization. In Finland, the, the guy's basically told, oh, you know what? You've got an issue. You've got a problem. We're going to help you. So they subsidize, the, the state subsidizes this work. They don't fire him. They give him a way. He doesn't have to work. He goes into rehab, which is paid for by the state. He's given tools to rehabilitate himself. If he loses his residence or is bankrupt, they back him up. They put him in a facility. They make sure that he goes to rehab, make sure that he goes to aftercare. They give him his job back. Or if he doesn't get his job back, they help him find another job. And then he goes back into the system and he's been rehabilitated and he turns into the productive member of society that we all that he wants to be. Um, that is a wonderful result. It doesn't work every time. There are some people in Finland who just decide that no, they don't want that, and they end up in the gutter or dead or whatever. That's going to happen. But over and above, statistically speaking, if you support people with rehabilitation 
and decriminalization instead of penalties, the end result is better and you save money on taxes because you don't have to support a multi-million dollar, multi-trillion dollar prison population as we do in the United States. You know, the quote, war on drugs. What a disaster. I mean, what an unmitigated disaster that was. Um, but still the mindset around that is very salient because, you know, all it takes is some, you know, some idiot with an AK-47 who's high on meth to shoot a couple of people to convince millions of Americans that we need to put everybody who's on drugs into jail where they can't hurt other people. Um, unfortunately, that's, you know, uh, that's, uh, that's what's happening. Um, so I, I don't I don't have the answer. But if you ask me personally, I, you know, if you read a lot of the New York Times articles by Maya Salovitz um, and other people who really talk about drug decriminalization in a very logical, rational and a progressive way, I mean, I think there's a lot that, that could be done here in this country specifically that, that would actually help the situation a lot more than the situation that we have. And to his credit, you know, Biden and the appropriations and the way that they're using the drug settlement money from, um, from the pharmaceutical payouts, et cetera, is a step in the right direction. Um, making, um, not making AA the mandated uh, thing that you have to do for your court, opening it up and making sure that people have options that, that can be non-secular, um, uh, financing people who use medically assisted treatment like Suboxone or Naltrexone or other modifications to get people to a point where they're okay enough and stable enough to actually go into a positive rehab experience as opposed to being thrown into prison where nothing's happening. You know, nothing good is happening except for we're expecting that person to rehabilitate themselves the hard way, expecting right. too much from people ultimately, because a lot of people leave prison, they go right back to where they were. Right. And I'm just going to say preach because I'm 100% behind all of that. And that's how I feel too. I'm like, preach it, sir, preach. I was like, that's... <laughs> but yeah, the but you know, it's, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of will and political maneuvering and, and uh, things to to move the United States in any of those directions. And, you know, when it, when it comes to drugs, I mean, you've got Fox News saying, Mary, your tax paying dollars is going to fund fentanyl pills for addicts in the street. Is that a great use of taxpayer money? Well, that's totally decontextualized information that's not accurate. And it just goes to, you know, further inure people to this issue and not wanna solve it. They just like, all right, let's put them all in jail. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's kind of like the same situation that, um, I mean, to, to, to bring it back to what I'm fighting right now, um, pro-education, um, here in Texas, education, public education is completely under attack. Um, and it's, it's, it's from a grifter movement and all of this stuff. Um, but the ultimate goal is to bring in vouchers, defund public education, bring in vouchers so that way charter schools and private schools can get taxpayer dollars and then inevitably, which charter schools and private schools aren't held to federal laws and standards, they mm -hmm. can turn away people of color, um, LGBTQIA, um, dis disabilities, and, and things like that, children from attending their schools, thus funneling them into the defunded public education and segregating them. Um, wow. And that's that's where I'm at right now. And it's this, it's the same kind of experience, only on a more local level that is happening. Um, and the arguments that I've been hearing from the other side about all of this is, well, they're just too soft or 
um what's another one another one is uh they're they they're you know they can do it on their own because I did it on my own you know in the 70s or whatever and I'm sitting here like okay you know so it's been really interesting to see how this is all playing out and how many different facets it actually affects you know Mm -hmm. with with the prison the pro-profit prison system Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff and how it all kind of ties back into it itself in a in a wild wacky bow so to speak right well yeah i mean you know the the um the uh a lot of people talk about the deep state conspiracy which really doesn't exist or you know it's very difficult to prove if it exists at all but there's a much deeper state conspiracy that you've just spoken about which is completely out in the open and viewable i mean if forget QAnon that's the conspiracy that people should be aware of because it's right there in the open under your eyes. And and that's what's so funny about these things that nobody, people put their head in the sand. Thank God that you haven't um, and that you're fighting a good fight. And a lot of more other people should join what you're doing because uh, they're they're wasting their time thinking about conspiracies that don't exist and not really focusing on the ones that directly will affect their lives and and the lives of the, of the, of the generations of children to follow. And ultimately this, this country. Thousand percent, thousand percent. They'd rather uh, have a conspiracy theory that uh, JFK Jr. is really alive or that Michelle Obama is really a man, and rather than opening their eyes to actual crap that's happening. I get furious. Yeah, (laughs) well, and you know, nothing against them, but it's just it's just human nature to focus on things which are very like sexy and queer and and like completely unbelievable, it's much more fun to believe in those things because it gives us a sense of wonderment. If we were to focus on things like what you've described, which are really depressing and anxiety provoking, we'd rather not do that. So in a sense, uh, being people are addicted to con- wacko conspiracy theories because it's a pleasurable addiction. It's sort of like self-medication because it mm-hmm. takes them away from real conspiracies, which are difficult. So the analogy would be like sobriety is like the real conspiracy versus being high on meth is really sort of you running your loop for the for the non-existent conspiracy theory it takes you away from what reality is um, and that's unfortunate because that's just the way of of certain people but that's changing thanks to people like you yes Uh-oh. she's a warrior i don't give herself enough but she will fight down to her last breath if she believes in something just a little pure fan appreciation moment, but for real, I don't know if she mentioned, I stopped to get my water. I'm so sorry. Uh, if she mentioned she's been, she's had death threat, death threats for this. And like, why are we threatening people that are doing the right thing with violence? It doesn't make, make it make sense. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's the people who can't win on the basis of good arguments will use, will raise their voice really loud and they'll threaten and they'll use violence because they don't have, they can't win on logic or reason or diplomacy. So they have to resort to violence. Right. We'll see. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the things that I'm finding and seeing is a lot of it is just validations for their own, um, belief systems should we say uh that drives them to these points too because then if they don't hold them if they don't look at it and hold themselves accountable saying okay well you know uh there's a specific presidential cult running around 
and saying, okay, well, you know, maybe I made a bad decision and that's okay. That doesn't define who I am. And that's, Mm -hmm. so the inability to admit fault or wrongs or to, I guess, um, deep down soul search. What you're describing is something as I wrote about in the book is that people in addiction, they're affected by two things, which are very important, which is the uh, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. So confirmation bias, the people that you're referring to are not going to take in information that, that contradicts what they already believe. So if you already believe that JFK is alive, then you're not going to listen to anything that says, no, he's not alive. You, you tune it out and you only look for information that confirms your belief. So you go to these crazy websites and you see articles or photos of Bigfoot or whatever, and you only focus on that. And that's your reality. And then another thing is um, cognitive dissonance, which is, you know, that QAnon is false. Everybody knows it's false. Everybody knows it's a joke, really. But there are people who still believe it. And that's fine. You can believe anything you want. But when you get information that conflicts with what you already believe, it causes you stress. And so what you tend to do is either lash out to prove that you're right by attacking people who are attacking your point of view, or you just forget your point of view. But what you don't do is humble yourself and say, you know what, I was wrong. Um, So for instance, uh, Enrique Tarrio and the Proud Boys just got convicted today of seditious conspiracy. So you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a whole group of people that are like, wait a minute, those guys just got convicted, but I think they're heroes to, to Trump and everything. They should never go to jail, they're martyrs. How do I reconcile these two realities? So there's gonna be a lot of people who are like, yeah, they, okay, they probably did a bad thing and they should go to jail. And, you know, that's, we learned from that. Like a lot of people in this whole process felt that, you know, that riots were probably a bad idea and they shouldn't have attacked the police and what happened was wrong. There are other people who are going to double down and say, nope, this is proof of the deep state conspiracy and et cetera, et cetera. So cognitive dissonance will always affect people and nobody's immune to it. I'm, I'm, it happens to me, it happens to you. It just happens in different ways. Um, just something that, that yeah, I didn't want to get drawn into political discussions, but you know, that, happy to do it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, that's okay. my bad. <laughs> no, no, no. I, and and that, I don't feel like you dragged me in. I think I'm glad that you did. It's, it's also nice to talk about something besides addiction, but because there are parallels, like what you're talking about is sort of like a, a, an addiction to untruth or an addiction to a point of view, um, right. which is not necessarily, you know, the correct way of, of doing things or a desired way of doing things. Then again, you know, all of these things are very subjective. Well, right. I'm so glad that you said that, the cognitive dissonance, because I was looking and searching for whatever it was <laughs> that makes people do exactly what you said. Like, I, I was talking to my ex-husband and we kind of are on polar opposite sides, but he's willing to learn and listen, which is kind of nice. And I'm willing to learn and listen, which is kind of nice. But I said to him just earlier, I said, some people, I'll say it, some of these MAGAs, I want to look at them and say, you're messing with me. When they say something, I'm like, no, you're, mess- you're messing with me because, right? Because you can't actually believe that that's true. But now that you're saying it, it makes complete sense that perhaps they know, they have an inkling that what they've been told is absolutely just mm-hmm. below. And that's why they get so, so Karen about it. <laughs> you know? So good, Karen. Well, there's a, there's a, um, I read this very interesting article at some point where, you know, they, they said that part of the reason that um, 
that uh, certain radical Muslims who are attacking people and killing women and, and blowing up airplanes and that, uh, is that they somehow know that there's something uh, not quite right in their faith because like here they're dealing with like the fact that there's Christianity and Judaism and these all these world faiths and that everyone's saying, no, yours is not the one true faith. And so their reaction to that is to, you know, violently oppose that, do it because it causes stress and anxiety and cognitive dissonance. With every act of, of religious terrorism, and that's not just for Muslims, but for everybody, every act of religious terrorism comes from a point of self-doubt in your own belief system. If you were completely confident in the veracity of your claims, you wouldn't need to do anything. You would just let people come to you as opposed to pushing it out there and insisting that everybody believe what you believe. And this is not to attack religion. I'm just saying anybody who has a belief that they think that other people should totally buy into, you can either persuade them, you can show them, or you can kill them. Um, that's Those are your options, basically. Well, just to touch on the religion. Ted. <laughs> like you, Ted. Oh, but to touch on religion really quickly is what he said is to believe that yours is the only way is the, the height of arrogance, especially if your religion is only a couple thousand years old and compared to, you know, millennia of other belief systems. Well, you know what? The fact that you've been around longer or shorter, that doesn't really matter. Quite frankly, I disagree with that. I, I don't think that any religion can be qualified by either the quality of what it says or the longevity of its program. I mean, I could come up with a religion tomorrow. And if what I say rings true to people and they believe it and they want to be part of it and it makes them happy, who's to say that that's wrong just because I just came along? That's what's, right. so fungible, that's what's so fungible about religion. Nothing against religion. I think faith is a wonderful thing. But, uh, you know, the idea of like whether a faith is wrong or not or true or not is a completely impossible question. It's a, it's a non-verified, like what Karl Popper said, it's uh, there's no way to prove whether it's true or not. And so, um, and so why even try it? Just why even try to prove that? Um, or just My issue is when you come and like I said, just this veritable baby of a religion and you want to oppress and control your way of belief is the only way. That arrogance, I cannot deal with. I can't. It's just well, like you're well, that's true. Of, that's true of all most most belief systems i mean to varying degrees um you know if in pakistan if you don't believe or whatever you're basically shot you know there's death penalties in certain countries um and in certain evangelical sects in the united states if you don't believe a certain thing you don't get to go to church and and certain mormon uh denominations if you don't toe the line then you are not going to be you will not end up in the promised land of eternal whatever. The Mormons have a way of looking at it. Judaism as well. You know, we, we tend to think of Jewish people as very calm and chill, and they're not trying to proselytize or convert you. But there are sects of Judaism which are very radical, which are very, um, and also violent. Um, and there's, you know, there's sects of Muslim that are very peaceful, very cool. Others that are not. There are parts of Hinduism which are totally chill. And we think of Hindus of like sitting around and like Buddhas and having a great time. But there are strains of Hinduism which are, terribly violent and have killed millions of Muslims over the years. So, you know, in every sect or every religion, there are parts of that team group that are really, um, that want to change people's minds through violence. Um, uh, 
And that's just that's just something that, that religion opens up because it's unverifiable. It's non, what Karl Popper said is that religions are non-falsifiable. You can never come up with a test, a scientific test to prove whether Christianity is fake or not fake. Um, there's no way of proving it. So it's not even in the realm of discussion or science. If you believe it and it's good for you, God bless you. Wonderful. I have my own belief system. You have your own. But I'm not going to tell anybody to believe what I believe because I can't prove that what I believe is actually the right thing to believe. I mean, I wouldn't try to convince anybody anyway. It's just it's hard when you grew up being told if you didn't believe this way, you were going to roast for eternity. So it's kind of like, eh. yeah, I, well, you know, that's that's uh, unfortunate that a lot of people are brought up with with that mindset. But you know, when you uh, when you tell people that at a very early age, they come to believe it. And usually it's been somebody said, some theologian said, give me the boy at eight years old and I'll give you the man, which means that most people, if you convince them that heaven and hell exist and that they're reportable to a higher power, et cetera, by the age of eight or nine, they'll probably believe that for the rest of their life. Um, and it's very hard to take them to make them not believe that. And not that you would want to make them not believe that. You don't necessarily have to convert people. I'm not in the business of converting. Nobody you know, should be. Um, people should just be left alone to believe whatever they want to believe. And, and if their religion tells them to do good things as a result and not impinge on the rights of others, yay, go yeah. <laughs> Oh, Ted's like my favorite person in the whole wide world right now. <laughs> no, come on, no. <laughs> We're back to do like, a, a, se a session on conspiracy theories and a session on religion. I want to I want to make sure that we do not get away too far away because we tangent like we tangent. Um, I don't want to get too far away from the fact that your company recovery moviemeetups.com is going to be having the world premiere of Clean Slate on May thir uh, 14th. Oh my god, May 14th. I don't want us to forget that before we wrap up. I'm so sorry. Kira, go ahead. Where can people get in contact with you, find you, all sorts of things? Well, I've thanks. I've, I've got a website. Um, the website is recoverymoviemeetups.com. You can also Google Ted Perkins and Recovery Movie Meetups and Addicted in Film comes up quite a bit. Uh, but just go to recoverymoviemeetups.com and you'll learn all about the program. Uh, I'm also telling people that if you would like to start your own Recovery Movie Meetups meeting yourself, you're invited. I'll register you. I'll give you the training for free. And if you're a professional, um, I'll even certify your continuing education credits as a result. I'm getting verified by ASAP to do that. So, um, and that's all for free. And that's you could start any meeting person to person um, uh, online. And all you have to do is just, you know, pick up a couple of copies of the workbook to help the people along, give them out. And um, come to the screening and learn more about recovery movie meetups and learn how movies can really become pivotal, uh, pivot, pivotal um, episodes in people's recovery. How, how one moment in one movie, possibly and even in clean slate, can lead to an aha moment or several aha moments while people are watching this film, which could radically transform their lives or even save their lives. I mean, this is, yeah, we're talking about addiction recovery. We're doing this podcast, but let's not forget that people are dying. You know, this is, we're doing really important work and we're all trying to help out in whichever way we can. And this, this screening is just my humble way to offer this to the recovery community for free 
to see this great work that Jonathan and Jared uh, produced over five years, the labor that they put into it, the love and the compassion and the, and the caring, and to share this with the recovery community to hope that they'll understand that movies can change the world um, and uh, can really help in people's recovery. So that's the message. I hope everybody can join us. And it's very easy. You can RSVP and you can just join. The, there's links where however you want to watch the movie on the 14th, you can do it. Magic of the internet. That's right. Right. I love that. The, I love the fact that someone or multiple someone's could watch the film and decide that they want to make a movie, <laughs> right? To get out of, to as their recovery to like work through it by making a film. Yes. Well, it's funny you should say that because um, ultimately uh, next year when this is up and running, um, I received an invitation that I thought was really interesting to come and teach a seminar as to how to write a script or how to write a movie about recovery so that people in recovery could actually have the tools to create a story about their own recovery and write a script about it or write a short story or how to do that, how to structure it. Because I actually have taught screenwriting around the world. That was one of my previous gigs. And I still advise a lot of clients as to how to write and how to do creative uh, things and make money on them. So um, that that might be something that I do next year is actual, you know, training and, and support for people who want to do movies like the one like Clean Slate or movies, you know, like Four Good Days or any of the movies that are being seen in theaters right now. Or this movie that came out, um, you know, The Year of the Dog is low budget thing where this guy had an alcohol use disorder and got out of it by filming a movie with his dog. And that's being oh. a movie was a way for him to overcome his addiction. Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> I did hear you mention that you would tell Sandy Bullock that we loved her film. <laughs> so I'm going to hold you to that. You, you let her know that we're huge fans. Huge. Well, it's funny. You should say, well, I am literally, I've reached out to um, her agent, hoping for a reply, but I'm hoping to get her to join me for like a quick uh, video interview so I can tell her what her movie means to people in recovery, like you, um, and have her say hello and sort of, uh, you know, sort of say hello to our community and, and become part of it. Um, well, thanks for, thanks for helping me promote this. I, I'd, love, I'd love for all your listeners to come join. It's free, it's fun. Mm. You know, join the community, RSVP, be, become part of the movie club, buy my book, you know, review the book if you like, start a meeting. Uh, you know, check out the movies. Also on, on the Recovery uh, Movie Meetups website, there's a database. It's very easy, just find the films and it has a database of all the movies that, have, that I, I suggest, all the ones that are mentioned in the book, along with links as to where you can buy them, where you can rent them, whether they're streamable, whether you can see them for free on Netflix. And it's a database which is updated all the time and it's super easy to use. So if you're looking for a film, just go there, click. It'll take you to the Amazon thing link or the Apple iTunes page and rent it, watch it, buy it, whatever you want. And on Amazon, they could buy the uh, um, the um, the book Addicted in Film, which is at like twelve ninety five or something. They could also get the workbook um, on Amazon if they just want a single copy. It's like the easiest way of getting a single copy. But if you're going to start a meeting and uh, if you do have meetings, we ask people not to photocopy the, the workbook and hand out samples, you, it's a copyright violation. So just buy copies of the book and you can buy them on my website, Recovery Movie Meetups. We have a store, you can get them for like $10 a piece and just hand them out to your participants or sell them to your participants. And, and I'm a nonprofit, so I'm not in it to make money. Um, I, I make a living as a television and film writer and a consultant. So um, this is my, my side gig and um, all the proceeds from the book sales and everything else go into Recovery TV, which is a 501c3 California nonprofit. Ed, thank you so much for joining Kira and I. 
recoverymoviemeetups.com, May 14th. You can watch 7 p.m. Eastern. You can watch Clean Slate, which is an incredible mockumentary kind of. It's a feature film documentary about addiction and recovery. Crazy. It's about two guys that actually make a movie about addiction recovery while they're in rehab. What a great idea or what a horrible idea. You will have to see for yourself. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an incredible film. And you're right. It could either be a great idea or a bad idea, but they might make it work because we don't do spoilers. It might turn out okay for them. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us like any movies that starts with the premise, it's crazy, but it just might work. Mm -hmm. that's, that's David and Goliath. And that's what people like to see, you know? Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. we, to, we love to see the unlikely hero win in the end. Like, I'm not saying that everybody wins in, the, in this movie or not every movie is going to have a happy ending, but, but we want to see the struggle. That's what, that's what addiction recovery is really all. It's identifying with the struggle and realizing that if they could do it, I can do it too. And I'm not unique. I've just got to do the work. Yeah, I'm not that. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you come back, please, I'm, to talk with just us. Just let me know. I, I'm happy to come back anytime. Love to. Okay. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your community, and I think you're doing a great job. And just keep up the great work. Thank you, Pup and Kira. Oh my God, we will see you May 14th for the live stream. We'll be there with bells on. We'll be there. Well, thank you. This has been an Odd Imagination production. Here at Odd Imagination, you'll find book, film, television, and product reviews, as well as roundtable discussions, current events, and hot topics. We are advocates for equality and the freedom to be who you are, no matter what. Aut Imagination gets its name from autism and imagination, two things that are very important to us. If you would like more information on Aut Imagination and the podcasts that we host on our website, you can visit autimagination.org, A-U-T-I-M-A-G-I-N-A-T-I-O-N dot org.